0: I want to thank Chris for reading our passage today. Uh, It was a wonderful reading, Chris. This is a long passage, and we only read half of it, right? Because there is a lot here. It is a rich story with multiple levels of meaning. And I will not be able to cover even half of it, I don't think. We'll save that for another day. Um, I want to focus today In our lesson on the relationship between Jesus and the woman and Jesus unfolding reality of who he is and her growing perception of who Jesus is and the the living water that Jesus gives to her as a gift So as Chris read in our passage, Jesus is on his way to Galilee. He has left Judea. He was in in Jerusalem in chapter 3, where he met with Nicodemus. And let's just pause a moment. He meets in Jerusalem, the holy city, with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, So he meets with what we might refer, or what in that social world would be, a high-status male, a ruler of the Jews. And he meets with him at night. In our story, he comes to Sychar, which is in Samaria, unclean territory. And in this unclean region, he meets with a low-status female, in the broad light of day. So it's an interesting mirror image, the woman and her conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus and his encounter with Jesus. So as he comes to this border, Samaria is unclean. And John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. This is the language of necessity He had to go through Samaria. Now, he really did not. Most Jews would never go through Samaria. They would bypass and go to Galilee around Samaria. But Jesus crosses the border. Now, there is no wall or fence at this border, but there is nevertheless... A powerful barrier and it is the Pharisaic purity system that is guarded by the rulers of the Jews they are the religious leaders are the keepers of the boundaries and they mark and protect the boundaries between clean and unclean Now the the Samaritans have been declared by the religious leaders as unclean. Not because of anything in particular that they have done, but simply by virtue of their birth. And they are unclean. And so Jesus takes a risk when he crosses this boundary. He risks being contaminated because they are a powerful contagion. Anything he touches or any any Samaritan person that he comes in contact with can contaminate him. So he risks contamination, and he risks inviting criticism by the religious leaders. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, those who make it their business To know such things, take note. And in John 7, when Jesus, or John 8, I'm sorry, when Jesus is being questioned about his authority, the religious leaders accuse him of being a Samaritan and of having a demon. So I don't know if they had spies at the border or someone leaked to the Jerusalem Times, I don't know. But somehow he found out that he, that they found out that Jesus had been to Samaria and they judge him guilty by association. And they declare him both unclean and evil. So he's taking a great risk. I say that one reason he had to go through Samaria is because ultimately, The way to the cross leads through Samaria. But the passage tells us two reasons why Jesus had to go through Samaria. In in Chris's reading, when Jesus talks to the woman about worship, he says to her, Woman, the hour is coming, and now is, when those who worship the Father will worship him, in spirit and in truth. And then he says, for such as these the Father seeks. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Did you hear that? For such as these the Father seeks. So Jesus had to go through Samaria because he is seeking true Worshippers, and he finds them in this unclean city of Sychar. He didn't find them in Jerusalem; he finds them here in Samaria. Also, the part of the passage we did not read is when, when uh, the uh, the disciples return from Sychar, having gone into the city to buy food. Jesus says, to, and they're arguing in their minds. Why is he talking to her, this woman? And what is she doing with him? And Jesus says to them, Lift up your eyes. And look around you. For the field is white unto harvest. So Jesus has to go through Samaria because the field is white unto harvest. And he is looking for true worshipers. You know, he doesn't see unclean people. He doesn't see people who are a threat to his purity. He doesn't see people that he cannot have contact with. He sees a field that is ripe unto harvest. And so, as he comes comes into the region of Sychar, Jacob's well is there and i love the way john tells us that tired from his tired out from his journey he sits beside the well what john is giving us is this picture of jesus the word made flesh who came and dwelt among us so we see jesus the man in flesh sitting beside a well at noontime, hot and tired and thirsty, sitting beside the well. And a woman comes to the well, a woman of Samaria. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now, the, the author gives us a little note that says, Samar- well, I think it's, well, I think I'm ahead of myself. So Jesus says, give me a drink. And the woman says, sir, I, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me? A woman of Samaria. You can, can you hear a little defensiveness maybe in her voice? Or maybe she's just being a little sarcastic. Um, that she is saying her uh, social cues are being read. There's something wrong with this picture. First of all, a man would not speak to a woman in public. Secondly, she is a Samaritan woman. He is a Jew. So he would have judged her unclean. But do you know something? In that social world, women of Samaria were not just declared unclean it's like somebody decided it's like somebody decided generations before let's deepen their level of uncleanness let's make it worse what can you what can be worse than being unclean but they decided that Samaritan women are permanently unclean menstruant from birth just degrade them a little bit more. Make them seem a little inhuman. I kind of see in the back of my mind that they they're, are saying, this way our, they won't, our boys won't come in contact with them. They'll know how unclean these women truly are. That's what happens when we label people, isn't it? We don't have to have regard for them because they are not like us. So we give them labels. We we dehumanize them. They even called Samaritans dogs, treated them as animals. So Jesus takes a huge risk by going through Samaria. But she says, so why is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? She knows what's going on. And so she says to him, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Now she hears living water. To her, living water is water that is flowing in a stream, not still a well. So water that comes from a spring or that water that is flowing. So she hears him at the level of what she knows. Living water is a stream. And so she says to him, sir, where do you get this living water? You have no bucket and the well is deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and who watered his flocks and drank from it? And he counters her challenge by saying, the water that Jacob drank from this well, when anyone who drinks from this well will thirst again. But, The water that I give to you will well up within you to eternal life, and you will never thirst again. And she says to him, Sir, give me this water that I may never thirst again, and that I will not have to keep coming here to draw water. Boy, that little phrase is loaded so that I will not have to keep coming here to draw water. Let's pause a minute and talk about her. Well, that doesn't sound very good. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's look at the woman more closely. She doesn't want to come here to this well to draw again. You know, there's something wrong with the picture. It's not what you would expect. She is a lo- alone in public space at a public hour. It is noon, and she has come to the well alone. Now, women in that world never traveled in public space alone. And they did not go to the well alone. They always went in the company of other women. And women did not draw water at noontime. The time that women went to the well was in the evening, in the cool of the day, or in early morning. If she fills her water jar at noon, her burden on her way home will be even greater as she carries her water jar. And so she has come to this well alone. It suggests that she is isolated Or that she carries shame. Jesus will ask her to call her husband. And we learn that she has had five husbands and that the man that she is living with is no longer, is not her husband. Now let's not presume to judge her. Because Jesus does not judge this woman. In fact, he deems her worthy of the gift of God. He does not call her a sinner. In fact, Jesus does not call anyone in the gospel of John a sinner. Only the Pharisees. He tells them that they will die in their sins. And their sin is the sin of unbelief. So he does not judge her because she has had five husbands. And, in fact, we don't know the reality of her life beyond that. She may, they may have died. This may be a liverate marriage situation. They may have divorced her. It may be that she could not have children. Maybe she's barren. Maybe she could not produce a male heir. Or she might have just burned the biscuits, you know, who knows? You know, and they would have divorced her. At any rate, it does not matter. At any rate, as a woman in that social world, she carries the blame. And as a result of that, she carries shame. And so she is isolated from the other women in the community. So she co- and the man that she is living with, she is fortunate to be living with a man so that she is not vulnerable and alone in the world. She has male agency. She has someone who provides for her and who protects for her. He may be a kinsman, a redeemer kinsman. You know, so we need, we should not presume to judge her or to know what her circumstance is. And so she hears Jesus say, I could give you living water. And she thinks... Wow, if I had a source of a stream where I could go and get water, I would never have to come here to draw again. Doesn't that spell relief to her? Never again publicly exposed like this. But the thing she doesn't understand is that Jesus is not talking about water that's like the water in the well. He he did not tell her, you will never have to come to the well and draw again. Because she will. She will have to keep coming to the well to draw. Because it is necessary to sustain her life in the flesh. And see, that's what we're talking about here at first. The well represents her life in the flesh. And she does those things necessary to sustain her life in the flesh. This is what Jesus is doing that I think is so powerful. He takes images, reality from our lives, from what we know day by day, to use them as metaphors so that we can understand something about what it is to have life in the spirit. So he uses this water as a metaphor. And he says, I will give you water that will well up within you to eternal life. In John 7, he says, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. For as the scripture says, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. So I love these two images together. Oh, and in John 7, he says, and this he said about the Spirit. And so I put these two passages together for a rich and powerful image for us that the water that Jesus gives wells up within us. In fact, the New Revised Standard Version, I like to say wells up. It sounds much more poetic than gushes up. You know, there's just something guttural about that. But I tell you, the word gushes up is powerfully consistent with Jesus' teaching in John's gospel. It says something about the abundance of the good things that God gives us, the abundant life. John says in John 1, And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And so this water that Jesus gives gushes up within us to the extent that it overflows into a river of living water. And we become powerful participants in the life of God, sharing the Spirit of God with others around us, the life of God. And so the Spirit indwells us mightily, fully, powerfully. It is the life of God, the living water, that wells up within us to eternal life. And so the woman is asking for this water, but she does not understand that it's the water from within. She hears and understands the literal water from the well. I used to tell my students, the water in Jacob's well is little w water. The water that Jesus gives is big w water. You know, it's just like the the life that Jesus gives John tells us in John 1 that the Word created all things. He created natural life. That's little l life. And he says, I have come that you might have life. That's big l life. So he's moving us from one level to another. So he uses uh, not only water, but he uses bread. He says, I am the living bread come down from heaven, that you might eat my flesh and drink my blood and live. So he uses bread and water, even birth, that, that life begins with birth. But Nicodemus, you've got to be born from above. You must be born again. He says to the woman, the water that's in this well, you will thirst again. But the water I give will well up to eternal life. So do you see what he's doing? He's using images that we know, reality that we know, that is necessary to sustain our life in the flesh. And then if we, re, if we hear him on the spiritual level or on the metaphoric level, we, we begin to understand that he is saying the spirit within you is like water to you. It sustains your life in the spirit. I am like bread to you, I sustain your life in the Spirit. I am like light to you, it is necessary to sustain your life in the Spirit. Do you understand how we're moving from the language of heaven, of earth, to the language of heaven? Jesus says in John 3, If I speak to you of the language of earth... And you do not understand. How are you going to understand if I speak to you of the language of heaven? So Jesus is using the language of the earth to help us understand something about the reality of heaven. That the spirit of God, the life of God within us must be nurtured. And we must thirst and that we sustain that life through the spirit and through the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ and so Jesus tells her then to go and get her husband and now when she first saw him she says how is it that you a Jew ask of me now he tells her about her five husbands and she says sir i perceive that you are a prophet you know, how does he know all these things? She's intrigued. In the beginning, she was only interested in the gift, not the giver. But now he says to her, she says to him, I perceive, sir, that you are a prophet. And then he engages her in conversation about worship. And she, when he says to her, Those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. She says, when the Messiah comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Can you be the Messiah? And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, in the New Revised Standard Version, it says, I am he, the one who speaks to you. Now, that's an English construct so that we can understand it. And it makes it grammatical, makes it easy for us to understand. When when Jesus says, I am he, that infers that he's saying, yes, I am the Messiah, right? But he doesn't say, I am he. In the Greek, he says, ego me, I am. He doesn't say he, I am, right out of the burning bush, And he's declaring more than than messiahship. He is God in flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John has taken us from the earthly, fleshly Jesus, God in flesh, sitting at the well, hungry and thirsty, and now fully revealed as God himself to this woman, I am. In fact, if you look in the eighth chapter of John, when when he's talking to the religious leaders, he says to them, before Abraham was, ego a me, I am. And so it's all over John's gospel, this declaration that the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we all live our lives at the level of Jacob's well. We do those things on a daily basis that are necessary to sustain our life in the flesh. We go to bed at night, get our rest, we wake up in the morning, we eat breakfast, all necessary to sustain our life in the flesh. When Stuart and I lived in Malibu, On Saturdays, we were off from work. We would drive through the valley, through the Malibu Canyon, go into Westlake Village, and go to Costco. And we would buy our milk and our eggs and our bread, things that are necessary to sustain our life in the flesh. We would take them home, put them in the refrigerator, and before you know it, they're gone. Jesus says, everyone who drinks from this well, will thirst again. It does not satisfy. Amen. And so, we go back to the well next Saturday and draw. Or we go to our jobs in the, every single day. We, we sit at our desks, we teach our classes, we do whatever we must do to to, um, to nurture and to sustain life in the flesh. At the end of the month, we get a paycheck. Now if you're like us, you'd put the paycheck in the, ma- in the bank or they just do it for us. We write our checks, pay our bills, and it's gone. And we have to go back to the well to draw. So do you see, this is what life is like at the level of flesh. It does not satisfy, it does not sustain us. And it will end. That's the thing about life in the flesh. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So that flesh, as Stuart said in his sermon two weeks ago, is not evil. But it is limited. We mark our lives in the flesh between birth and death. And all that we do will come to an end. will all pass away. But the life of God is everlasting. It wells up within us to eternal life, and we will not thirst again. Only the Spirit of God can satisfy the hunger and the thirst that is within us. For this woman, she comes to the well. Having five husbands, you know she she bears wounds. You know that she bears scars and is thirsty in the deepest recesses of her life. And Jesus, it does not matter to him that she is Samaritan. It does not matter to him that she is, is unclean. It does not matter to him that she has had five husbands. What matters to him is that she is in need of the gift of God, eternal life, for her life, that she might know and live. And so she goes into her village, and as she goes, John tells us this little bit of information that's so precious. She leaves her water jar behind, and she goes into the city. The water jar, and I could use mine right about now, the, her <laughs> water jar, is a symbol it's symbolic of her life in the flesh it is necessary for her to sustain her life in the flesh but she has come to see a new reality in her life the possibility that her hopes that the messiah would come are perhaps it is true and her from the reservoir of her growing faith And in her hope that this is indeed the Messiah, she leaves the water jar behind because she is realizing there is more to her life than this water jar. And she goes into the village and says to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now there is more to our life than our water jars. This is the beautiful thing about the life of God within us that there is more to your life than your job. There is more to your life than the pressure of your job and your and the deadlines. There's more to your life than these papers that you have to write and you have to write your papers. It's necessary. <laughs> So don't get me don't get me wrong. These are things they're not evil, they're not bad. They're just limited. They belong to the flesh. And when we get bogged down with with pressure and when we get bogged down with disappointment and with resentment, it ties us to the earth. It ties us to the earth. So we need to say to ourselves, there is more to my life than this. There is more to my life than the laundry, to the things that are necessary to sustain our life in the flesh. But there is more. There is more to my life. There is even more to my life than the grave. You know, this week we are mourning the loss of Gerald Kendrick a wonderful saint who has lived among us. And we, we claim today with Marjorie and the family the promise that there is more to his life than the grave. John 3 says, Whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. The water that I give to you will well up within you to eternal life. There is more to our life than the grave. And so it is the life of God that, that in fact, the spirit of God that, in fact, gives us life. And this is where life is centered for us. And so we come today. We come today because we want to drink deeply of the living water. We have come so that we might nurture and sustain our life in the Spirit together. So let's stand as we prepare to take communion. We have come to this table because it is necessary for us to sustain our life in the spirit. It is necessary that we eat the bread and drink the cup, that we might live. And so we nurture the life. We drink deeply of the the living water so that God will continue to sustain our lives in the flesh. And there is no boundary, no border, nothing that separates us from the table, or from God himself. So God, who did not regard boundaries and labels and, and difference to separate him from, other, from, from us, does not put a barrier at this table. When I was a little girl, we used to sing communion songs. Do you remember when they used to say, and now to prepare our minds for communion, we will sing... Page 23, I know that's not right, Paul, but it's page 23, and we would sing this song, all things are ready, come to the feast, come for the door is open wide, a place of honor is reserved for you at the master's side. Don't you love that image? Well, that is the love of God. The hospitality of God poured out for all who believe. And so we come to this table today to partake of the bread and the wine, which is life to us. So let's bow as we pray. Dear God, we're grateful for this feast. This feast divine, all else surpassing. And we pray, Father, that you will bless it and bless us as we partake of it, that we might live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.